Turn in your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 12. We started last week a new series. If you want to catch up, you can find it on the app, and you can also find it on our YouTube channel. Uh, we talked about Martin Luther last week. At, uh, in February, it was the anniversary of, of his death, 535 years ago, something like that. And, but there's a lot in it for us today, learning how to take a stand for things, raise your voice, find your voice. And we talked about William uh, Tyndale in the evening. Uh, he, the reason you have a Bible that you can turn to this morning was a, a guy paid for that with his life, and uh, we wanted to honor him, and uh, there's parts of that story that relate to us today. This morning, we're going to teach about the Anabaptists, and we're going to go with this for a few more Sundays, this series. But our text for it is Hebrews chapter 12, and it says, therefore, and the reason that there's a therefore is you go back to see what he's been summarizing. He's been summarizing a, a hall of faith, people who went before us, exhibited, tapped into great grace because of their faith, uh, a who's who from church history or from Bible history, and we could add to that, I think, today, church history. is Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run the race. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You were the joy set before him. It was the fact that you could raise your hands and, and know the Father and speak to the Father and enjoy his embrace, enjoy him now and forever, I believe was the joy that Jesus set before him and allowed him to endure Incredible hardships and shame and, and uh, what, what they put him through. I think that's a good way to get through a difficult time. Is set something before you, something on the other side of whatever you're going through that, that produces a kind of joy that fuels your endurance. We all have to have endurance. Uh, and these are days, you're gonna, you can't get through these days without some level of endurance. And I think we're going to need it more in the days to come. He says, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And the word witnesses here is martyrs. And so we, we come from a long line of, of people who paid with their lives. And, and so I think we're being called to do that in this verse. And whatever is hindering us from that. And he put it in two categories. One is weights and the other is sins. And there's things that aren't sin, but they hold us back. They keep us out of God's best. But you can't call it a sin. It's just an encumbrance, unnecessary, something we should cast off. And um, it would be good for us to look at what, what's holding us back from giving our all. What's, giving our, what's holding us back from really running the race, this race of faith is set before us. I want to talk about a, a group of people, a movement that happened. about 500 years ago. It still affects us to this day. And it's the, called the Anabaptist movement. How many here 
are from an Amish or Mennonite background, that's your roots. Could you just wave at me? Yeah, that's a sizable portion. Can I get your permission? Can I teach you your, your history? As a non-Mennonite, non non-Amish person? Yeah, can I share what I believe happened? It's my perspective. Uh, it's gleaned from stories and personal experiences. And uh, I, I, I was one of the first non-Mennonites that was invited to become a Mennonite pastor back in 1985. How many were here in 1985? <laughs> Probably not very many of you. Sam and I. Um, I was brought in as a church planner. They, they really wanted to see churches planted. Most of the churches that had started in our area of New York, at least, uh, came out of church splits. They were fragments. Because wherever there's legalism, there's lots of splits. And, um, but they intentionally start a church for non-Mennonites to come and be part of that. That was very, very different. But they were told if they didn't start doing that, that it wouldn't be long that that movement would be irrelevant. And so they really started working at it. One of the first things that they did, they uh, allowed me to become a pastor. So I was a Mennonite pastor for 16 years and most of that time was involved in church planning, helping them plant churches, and, and uh, involved in different levels of leadership within our conference. And so I was one of the three leaders for our conference called Overseers. And so I, I, I had a lot of experience, most of it good. It was a tremendous Bible school, a tremendous learning time for me. Um, but most of my ministry has been to, to people who are either Amish or Mennonite in background. I identify as an Anabaptist. Uh, even though I was a Mennonite pastor, I was re reminded from time to time that I was never going to be a Mennonite, uh, that I didn't qualify because there's a, um, a culture that goes with that. I even thought of changing my name to Clarkson Druber to see if that would <laughs> open things up for me, but even that wouldn't have done it. And um, so, but I'm Swiss German. That is my genealogy. My roots go back, and there's... Anabaptists in my background, my story as well. And so I identify because I think you can be an Anabaptist by choice. Like you could choose to be an Anabaptist. Maybe after this message you will want to or you won't want to. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. But it really starts again with Luther. Luther was the prime mover for that whole generation. Uh, really looks like everything started with him. He read the Bible in a verse saying that the way that you're saved is simply by faith. And he was, he was doing all the kinds of things that they required by the church and all kinds of things to try to get close to God. There's lots of people who do anything to get close to God. They would kneel on glass, go upstairs on their knees and flail themselves. That's happened here in New York State, not, not just in Germany 500 years ago. Uh, there are people who do that today in America. There are people this uh, Easter season coming up who will nail themselves physically on a, tr on a cross in the Philippines to try to get close to God. That happens every Easter, and it's in the news every Easter as well. Luther was trying to connect with God, and as he read the Bible, he discovered that what he'd been doing was all wrong, that he just needed to simply believe, accept by faith what God's terms were, and that was believing in Jesus. And, and so he believed in Jesus historically, but he moved from a posture of, of, of believing in his head to believing in his heart, and it changed everything for him. He came alive. 
He had a personal revival. And that personal revival spread, and uh, he was branded an outlaw, both by the state. Uh, but the state actually branded him an outlaw and, and sought to kill him. His own church, his own uh, denomination, so to speak. And that's all there was. There really was only one church. They wanted him killed. They wanted him silenced. They called him a, a boar in the Lord's vineyard. And, um, but he wasn't the only one. It's surprising. I, I notice in church history that when God's doing one thing in one area, he often does it through other people in another area. And there's a guy named Eurich Zwingli. I say Zwingli. Yeah, that tests whether, how German you are. Or Swiss. Anyway, he spoke German. He was Swiss. And uh, he was uh, a priest, actually the same age, just by a few months different than Martin Luther. Same educational background, same. They're both musical. They're both really bright, both writers, both influential leaders. And, and Jurek uh, Zwingli's in Switzerland, uh, German-speaking part of Switzerland. And he had an awakening. He had a personal uh, revival as well. And became a, a leader for his that part of the movement. And uh, but Zwingli went further than Luther. It's it's hard to imagine for us today. Luther has this amazing experience, but he doesn't leave the Catholic Church because that that was never his goal. It was never it was never in his thinking to start a new movement. He just wanted to protest. And, and I, that's allowed. He just wanted to protest. He wasn't thinking, oh, I'll start a whole new movement, uh, a choice for people. He was just trying to get the Catholic Church to be better than what it was. And so uh, it's funny, when you go to Germany today and you get into a Lutheran church, it's astonishing how Catholic it is. And uh, down in Chile, I've been invited to preach in a Lutheran church, and it was so Catholic, it's, it shocked me. They still have the Mass. They still have the altar. I mean, uh, uh, it's amazing how close that they still are, even to this day. And they've had some reconciliation with the Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church. And, and, uh, but Zwingli went further. And that's part of my message today is there's always someone who will push you and wants you to go further than you're comfortable with or what you're used to. And so if you can imagine this tension where you think, you know, you're not starting at zero. You're starting at minus 500. You've come to zero, and now you're at 10. But there's someone that's at 10, and they're pushing you to 20, 20, 30. They want you to go further. And Zwingli was one of those guys who wanted to go further. And one of the first things he did is he introduced public singing on Sunday. All of a sudden, they, they busted up the organ. They had a massive organ, the organ... Uh, Master, he wept that he wept that day that they busted that up because the organ was the voice of worship in the church, and so they said, "Let's get rid of that." They had choirs and they had chanting, and these are professional singers, and they would have this chant. You've heard, uh, I think it's called Georgian chant chanting. You maybe you've seen that, or heard that. It that would have been Sunday, and the people would sit there and listen to it. And Zwingli said, "Enough of that. Let's move that out, and let's." Let's sing songs. He wrote songs. He got some Luther wrote songs. And, and next thing you know, if you can imagine, congregational singing was introduced to the church. Worship. Imagine hearing in these great cathedrals, hearing your voice for the first time. Imagine coming to church and all of a sudden it's alive with singing. The other thing he introduced was preaching. And Zwingli was a great preacher. And... Uh, uh, before that, there was a lectionary, a Roman lectionary that everybody read. Uh, 
every Sunday. They're on the same page everywhere in in Christian Christianity at that time. You're on the same page. You're reading the same notes that have been printed somewhere or published in some way. And, uh, it's, you're expected to read it. And so that's what Zwingli had done. But now all of a sudden he found his voice and he started preaching animated sermons, preaching, preaching to the people, calling for repentance, calling them for action to do something. So he went further. Uh, he got rid of the icons, got rid of the candles. Uh, and he wanted to go further than than what was comfortable for Luther. Luther was, Luther was really concerned about what he heard about Zwingli. And, and for a couple of reasons. There was a time when Luther was held up in this castle where he's translating the Bible into German. And he's handled, he's, uh, I think he's in that castle for like 300 days uh, sequestered. And, and during that time, one of his disciples, one of Luther's disciples, went into the Wittenberg church and got rid of all the icons and tipped over uh, all the sacred cows of Catholicism. He got rid of his priestly garbs. He put on plain garbs. He even put on an old peasant sombrero and insisted that people now call him Brother Andrew rather than uh, Father or whatever they were calling them back then. And, and didn't want that kind of reverence, the priestly reverence. Got rid of a bunch of stuff, threw out all kinds of things and it made Luther mad. When he come back, and that's his church, and he came back, and this guy had done this. He thought he was crazy. He thought he, thought he was a prophet that was tipping over, you know, tipping over the, uh, the tables of the temple. And it made Luther mad. And so Zwingli kind of reminded him of Andrew. No relation. And... Uh, but all of a sudden, if you can imagine, you know, you're being accused of going too far, too extreme... And all of a sudden, your young disciples, the young people in your church, they're reading the Luther Bible for the first time. They're, lead, they're reading the Bible in their own language. You can imagine how exciting that would have been. They, they can't get enough of it. And they're checking everything that's going on in their lives according to the scripture that they can read for the first time. And so Zwingli's young people, they come to him and they say, Yurik, we're not going far enough. We're trying to get back to the book of Acts. We're trying to get it back to the way it was in the beginning. And you're not there. You're not going there. And he, well, he's giving me an example. He says, well, we've been reading the Bible. And we find that there's no place where babies are baptized. Everybody who's baptized in the book of Acts are believers. It's believer's baptism. Well, if you can imagine, everyone in, in Christianity was baptized as a baby. That was how to Christianize them. And it's just expected. Everybody does that. Imagine having that cut away instantly, that you're supposed to drop that. I mean, that was such a major thing. And what if that wasn't the Lord and these babies, they don't go to, they don't make heaven. And so it was a massive, massive thing. But these young people, they said, no, we, we see it in Scripture. We're not supposed to baptize babies. And they were having babies. They were getting married and starting to have babies. And it came time for them to baptize their babies. And they said, yet, no, we're not going to do this. Well, that made Yurik mad. And he accused them of being radical. Now, he's being accused by Luther of being radical. Now, he's accusing his disciples of being too radical. They said, not only are we not going to baptize our babies, but we want to be baptized as believers. We've never been baptized as believers before. And he said no to that. 
And then he put out, he laid down the law. He says, if your babies aren't baptized in eight days after being born, they won't go to heaven. And you're in trouble with the, with the law. And if, it's hard to imagine today, but the church and the state were one. And so if, if you didn't obey the pastor or the priest, they could call uh, the army in and take your farm or put you in prison or put, torture you because they were the, the police of the church. And so if you could imagine a bunch of young people, young disciples, meeting in a cottage outside of town, and they're talking about this issue, and the, the pastor's not going far enough, and, and, and we want to get back to the book of Acts, and, and he's afraid of public opinion and afraid of what other people will say. And uh, one of them turned to the four, the others that were with him, and said, baptize me. I want to be baptized. Baptize me. And they took a jug of water, it's all in secret. They can't go down to the stream or they can't do it in church. They can't do it in public. They poured a jug of water over this guy's head. And then they turned and they, they baptized each other. And you can't do that without coming alive. You're following, you're following the Lord. You're obeying the Lord. There's, there's life in that. There's freedom in that. There's incredible release and joy in and, and, and following your heart. If you long to be baptized, you'll never be satisfied until you're baptized. Your heart, Jesus in you, will want you to be baptized. And they've fulfilled that longing, that desire. Well, when word got back to Yurik Swingley that these people had, these young disciples from his church had baptized each other. He was livid. He called for their arrest. They arrested one of them, Felix Mance. They took him down to the main river that ran through the city. They took him out in a skiff, and they wrapped him with ropes and chains and rocks and weighted him down. They lowered him over the side of the boat, just his face above the water. And they said, recant. Confess that what you've done is sin. Confess what you've done is wrong. Deny your baptism. Deny what you've done. Uh, the, you're saying it's biblical. You're saying it's right. You need to deny that. Or we'll baptize you once and for all. What would you do? He couldn't deny it. It had life in it for him. It was biblical. It was right. It was required by God. Regardless what man says, regardless what, whether it pleases people, regardless what the police say. And he couldn't. And they dropped him. And they drowned him. When they caught the other four that were there, they drowned them. And word of that, you can imagine, the word of that spread. These people, what did they do? Well, they rebaptized. They they were they were baptized as babies. They wanted to be baptized as believers, and and then out kind of awakened in people's thinking. They probably never thought about it before. Now all of a sudden, well, what about me? What do I believe? And what does the Bible say to me? And a movement began, especially when they started persecuting. That's like throwing gasoline on a fire to put it out. And this grassroots movement spread. And other people were emboldened by the death of these the martyrs, a cloud of witnesses. 
They were emboldened to do the same. Next thing you know, people are saying, baptize me. Hey, hey, baptize me. Take them down to the stream and lower them in in the dark of night, early dawn. And that life, people would say, I feel alive. You should do it. You should get rebaptized. And people started making fun of this movement. They called them Anabaptists, rebaptizers. But it was a derogatory term. It was not a, a, a nice term. If you were called a rebaptizer, you might lose your job. If you're rebaptizing, you're moving from one place to another. The, the cities back then were controlled, very much more controlled than anything we know here. Uh, you couldn't just move into a town. You'd have to get permission from the authorities, and they would find out that you're a rebaptizer, and they wouldn't let you move. They wouldn't let you come into that village. They wouldn't let you live. Or they'd ask you to leave. You've been baptizing uh, your family and other members, and you've been doing that, and they say, you've been doing that. You have to leave our village, and then there's nowhere to go. It's not like you can just go to the next town. you got to get, you got to get permission to move into that town. And it became this huge thing. The more that they tried to put it out, the, the faster it spread and moved from heart to heart and home to home, village to village, and it's spreading all across Switzerland and Germany. It gets into Holland. Huge, huge controversy. And people are saying, have you been rebaptized? They're, they're pointing that out to people. They're publicly preaching it. They find out that they, they find their voice and they go out and they preach, you must, you must be saved. You must, be, you must call upon Jesus and be rebaptized. You've been baptized as a baby. It doesn't count. It unleashed uh, a wave of persecution. They started capturing people. They'd throw them in jail. They'd banish them from a town. They'd take their farm and banish them, say, now you have to leave. You and your family, leave our village, leave our city. They started burning people, young people, whole families. They started drowning people. More people were killed in this next 25-year period than any time in church history before. And it's Christians killing Christians. You can imagine the, the, the church says to the state, there's a bunch of Anabaptists in this village, round them up. And all of a sudden, they'd come riding into town on their furious war horses, and they're soldiers. They got the great, big, huge, fancy mustaches, and their chest is full of brass buttons, and they're waving a sword, and they're, they're, they're doing this in the name of the Lord, collecting Anabaptists. No wonder, after a while, the Anabaptist said, no mustaches, no buttons, no sword. Because it's Christians professing to be believers who are arresting us and throwing us out of our home, putting us in prison, separating our families, killing our brothers, all in the name of the Lord. What a confusing, crazy time. The Anabaptists, after a while, said, you know, we're not Protestants because Protestants, they're, they're killing people. We're not Catholics. We're something else. We're this whole third way. We're, we're, we, don't identify, we don't identify with either of those groups. And what happened, it's so amazing, is, is the Protestants had been at war with the Catholics physically at times at war. The big war happened. 
as a result of this whole Reformation, but uh, Protestants actually joined hands with Catholics to kill Anabaptists. It's just hard to imagine that they could set aside their differences because there's another risk, another crazy group that's springing up. And there are people who took it to extremes. And I think sometimes that's what, if you're a radical, then there's someone who's more radical than you or pushing you to be more radical than you are. And next thing you know, being radical becomes a lightning rod. There's a group of Anabaptists that took over a city, an actual city called Munster, and they took the city by force, and they called, they, they, they called it the New Jerusalem. It's now Zion. And uh, they told the poor people that there's going to be equality, that there's no more rich, there's no more poor. Uh, come in here, and where there's a sharing of wealth, I mean, if that doesn't bring people into your city. But it was forced sharing of wealth. They also said that, and some of them were prophesying the end of the, end of the world. They were, they were going in extreme prophesying and proclaiming all kinds of things. One of them proclaimed to be the second Gideon, and he's this warrior who's going to deliver Zion. And the armies come in, and they lay siege on the city. And, and there's a lot of stuff that's happening. And this becomes such an extreme example of, uh, everyone, everyone's needs to be rebaptized, and not only that, you will be rebaptized, and it's all by force, and you, it's required. If you're going to live in the city, you must be rebaptized, but it's no longer out of the, the volition of your own will or because you have a desire. It's required to live in the city. Not only that, one of them, uh, they had these delusions that would come over them. One of them felt that he was the new David. The other guy, he thought he was the new Gideon. That, it didn't turn out good for him. They killed him. Another guy, he felt that he was such a great charismatic leader that he must be David, and he pronounced himself the new David over Zion. It all fits if you, make, you, know, if you want to make sense of it. And that David had many wives, and so they, they took a lot of wives. And, and it, was re, it was required that you take wives. And next thing you know, he's got 16 wives. And you can imagine, imagine words spreading from how it does you know, from place to place, town to town, that that's what the Anabaptists believe. That's what they do. They'll take your wealth, and, and they take all the wives, and take your cities by force. And so they sieged that city. People were starving. And uh, they finally, they took it. They punished the leaders of it in a very dramatic way. They actually... Uh, put them in cages and hung them up for everyone to see. This is what happens to the leaders. Those cages are still there to this day. Munster became the biggest thing that identified an Anabaptist. So if you imagine, you're wanting to be radical. You're wanting to get back to the book of Acts. You're wanting to be part of this movement, but now there's a stain, the embarrassment of that extreme craziness that's done in the name of Anabaptists. It's, it's kind of like wanting to go down to Washington, D.C. and protest the election, and, but then there's someone who throws a fi uh, fire extinguisher in the face of a policeman, and then all of a sudden you see that, and you say, well, that doesn't, that, that doesn't identify me. I, that's not my heart. Or you're against abortion. We just heard a good sermon recently from uh, one of ours 
on abortion. So that's your, that's, that's your passion. You feel passionate about abortion. But then there's an abortionist or a guy who's anti-abortion, and he actually firebombs a clinic. That's happened in my lifetime. Or become a sniper and shoot doctors who are working in these clinics in the back while they're getting in another house or in another car. That's happened. Here you are now. You're anti-abortion, but not to that extreme. But that's what marks you. That's what gets in the paper. That's what gets the headlines. That's what how people see you. The same thing's going to happen with vaccination. You have a, a bias against that. You don't want top-down being told that you must be vaccinated, but it's happening. You, there's places right now you can't, you can't work in a hospital with people unless you've been vaccinated, so they give you a, a paper-pushing job or take away your job because you refused vaccination. It's going to be a big issue. It's going to divide. And then there's people who, are t who take that to an extreme, and um, it doesn't matter what you do. It, it, let's say it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of Spirit. And that's what you're radical about. That's what you're passionate about. You read the book of Acts. You want to get back to the book of Acts. Then there's some guy who, who uh, just takes that and drives it into the ditch and takes that to an extreme. And next thing you know, you're confused with that group. It has happened. It will happen. It must happen. There always seems to be this pattern of, of people taking a good thing that whatever God's doing, because this movement, this grassroots movement, had no leader, and it swept Europe. It was of God. It was trying to bring the whole church back into the book of Acts. It was a God-given movement. It was a great, great revival. But there are people who take it to extreme. You can take the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and Paul's writing to the Corinthians about them taking gifts of the Spirit to an extreme for the wrong reasons, out of a, out of a uh, selfishness. And he actually wrote them at one time. He says, you know, people are going to think you're crazy for how far you're going with this thing. You need to come back into balance. You need to come back. Yes, we want you to be full of the Spirit. We want you to be free in the Spirit. We want you to be used by the Spirit. But the primary thing is what's, what's best for the common good? What benefits the whole, not just what benefits you, not just what edifies you? But it happened, happened in the Bible. There are churches that have remained open during this season and and some of them do it out of a, a such a contempt that I can't identify with that yeah I think there's something about staying open but motive matters to me then along came Menno you can imagine the chaos and confusion that was happening this movement was like a wildfire no leader No real boundaries, no real definition. It's kind of like whatever you want it to be. You've, it's, it's a funny thing. You've been cut, cut loose from the confines of a, of a rigid and regulatory Catholic religion, and now that's been taken away, and all of a sudden you're free to do whatever you want, believe what you want, and you just go from that into crazy lawlessness. It's like these two extremes exist. There's legalism and lawlessness, and... They've got to find this middle ground, this middle, middle place. And there's a guy named Menno Simons, and he's in Holland. He's a Dutchman. 
red-haired guy. And Menno was a, a priest, and uh, he met the Lord. He found out that Jesus was real. He became an Anabaptist. By experience, he was rebaptized and had to go in into hiding. They never killed him, but he was hunted all the time. He had to live on the run. But he was also an author, and he began to think through what, what this movement needed and, and, and what really defines being an Anabaptist for him. And he began writing it and publish it, and people were saying, that's how I feel. He's saying it the way I think. I, I agree with what Menno's saying. And people began to, he began putting in the biblical language, a framework, what they believed. And those who went that way, they, they were called Mennonites. And a lot of people did that, Wesleyans, Luther, Lutherans. That was something that pe they weren't calling themselves that. They called themselves brethren. But other people, that's how they identified them, by whatever, whoever they were following. One guy, he'd come out of that Anabaptist movement, and he said, you know, we need to be stricter in discipline. Uh, people are doing things that they shouldn't do, and when they do that, they should be excommunicated, they should be disciplined. Excommunication was the heaviest discipline you could ever impose on someone. That's saying you cannot be part of our church. You cannot have fellowship with us. We'll no longer talk with you. That was such a, such a radical thing that we couldn't have fellowship. We can't be together. And he said, that's the cost of you just doing whatever you want to do. And his name was Jacob Amon. And the people who followed him were called Amish. And they, he was just super strict. As a matter of fact, black and white, you disobey. You don't keep these laws, these rules that we have. And it was a, the movement needed <laughs> some, some order it was like this wild, crazy, charismatic movement that didn't have any leader or any boundaries, any framework, and these guys were trying to do it. And Jacob, he was so strict. He said, no, if you don't keep the laws, you're done. You're no longer part of us. We'll cut you off. We'll ban you. We won't eat meals with you. We won't have anything to do with you. Even if you're family, we won't have anything to do with you. And the people who felt that that was speaking for where they're at, that brought some security. They followed him, and became Amish. And there's all these restrictions on Anabaptists. In Switzerland, to this day, uh, a, a group that I was with, we, they, they, uh, we went, some went to Holland where Menno's Church, Menno's Church is still running to this day. You can go there, the same church is still running, which is amazing if you think about it. And then there's the Switzerland, the Swiss group. And in Switzerland, they said, okay, if you... Anabaptists want to stay in this region. There's a certain uh, altitude that you cannot farm below. You can't have good fields. You can't have good, good uh, uh, places for your farms, your crops. So they drew a line on the mountain ridges, a lot of mountains and a lot of hills, and said you cannot farm below the certain altitude. You can go to Switzerland to this day, and there's all these prosperous farms where nothing was supposed to grow that... The Anabaptist Mennonites turned into uh, wonderful farms. I, I was in a place one time where I held in my hand this clip, a homemade uh, clip made out of steel that was folded steel, and I had a screw running through the middle of it. And I didn't know quite what it was. And I, they explained to me that this was when Anabaptists would be tied to the stake to be burned, they would always preach, testify, tell people to repent. 
because it takes a while for a person to actually die by being burned alive. And so they would preach, and so they didn't want them to preach anymore, so they put this on their tongue so they couldn't move their tongue, and they screwed that onto their tongue to keep them from preaching. It was a horrible, horrible time to be a radical, to be alive, to be trying to follow Jesus, to trying to set aside. Richard was telling me, Richard Showalter was a great friend of mine and, and just a beautiful, beautiful Christian man, one of the first spirit-filled conservative Mennonite Christians that I had ever met and, and uh, uh, had been a missionary to Turkey. He's now in heaven. He's, he's home free. Uh, but on that time when they took a group of our people to, uh, to see Switzerland, they took him up into uh, his family church. His last name is Showalter, and the village, I believe, was called Showalter. is where he came from. And they took him up into a tower where they kept Anabaptists who were too radical, and there was a slab of stone, chains on it, all chiseled flat stone, and steel bars on the door. And they said, uh, this is where we put people who were Anabaptists. They're going too far. And uh, uh, you could hear the meeting of the church down below because it was just a tower above the church. You could hear them singing. You could hear them preaching. You could hear the fellowship. You could hear all that. But you're chained to a stone slab where you can't roll over. You can't get comfortable. You can't move. You can't. Imagine chained to the same position day after day, week after week, and you can't move. And they asked Richard, would you like to, would you like to try this? And, and he thought he would. So they chained him to that slab, and they closed the door, and they left him. And he, he, he said, I, I completely broke down, cried his heart out, because his relatives would have experienced something like that. But you could hear what was going on in the church down below. Was Wingley and Luther, a lot of enmity between those two groups. There had been a natural prejudice against German-speaking Swiss and Germans anyway. There had been a lot of animosity. There's always those kinds of prejudices that seem to exist. And, uh, but they got together. Uh, a, a leader knew them both, said, you guys are not that far apart. You, you think you're far apart, but you're really not. You should come together, and he arranged at a certain castle where the, these two leaders of this great reformation that was taking place could meet and be together. And if you can imagine what that would be like, Luther, maybe, maybe he starts first. There's no tapes of these meetings. And so Luther says, I hear you believe this. Zwingli says, I don't believe that. He says, well, I heard you do. No, here's what I believe. Well, that's what I believe. I hear you believe this. He says, I've never said that. That's not what I believe. Well, what do you believe? I believe this. And they had 14 points of disagreement that they needed to talk through, and they went through each point. And they said, on this point, this is what I, I differ with you on. I disagree. It makes me angry that you believe this way. And the guy said, well, I don't believe that. I believe this. He says, well, that's what I believe. You can imagine that meeting. They went, through, they went through all the points down to, I think, the 13th point, which had to do with the mass, that the, body, the, the bread and the wine turns into the blood and body of Jesus. You're actually eating Jesus. There's a re-sacrifice that's taking place every time you have the mass. And Zwingli says, I don't believe that. 
Luther says, I do. And he said, I don't believe that. And, and Luther got so angry, he's pounding the table. This is my body. This is my body. And here they are, this whole movement that covers a lot of Europe by this time, couldn't agree on one point about communion, of all things. Of all things. The, things, the thing that we all have in common in this room is the body and blood of Jesus. That's what we have in common. If it, isn't for, isn't for, if it wasn't for his blood, we'd not, have, we'd not be hanging out together probably. And we've become his body because his body is broken. That's what we have in common. And they couldn't agree on that. And they left that conference never to see each other again, never to unify. Had they unified, the, the shape of, of Europe, maybe the shape of the rest of the world would have been dramatically different. Imagine if they come together and just said, let's just put aside what we don't agree on. Let's major on what we do agree on, and we'll just see what God does with these movements. Let's, let's move them. I, I, think, I think it would have changed all of Europe. There was a war that broke out, Catholics killing Protestants, and that happened for a long time. And Zwingli enlisted. He got in the, in the army, and he became a leader in the army. He's got a suit of armor, male, and, and uh, he goes out into, because he believed that you needed to kill your enemy with the sword. Luther said, I don't believe that. I don't think you could do that. It's the word of God that we have to use the word of God. Zwingli used to believe that, but now his enemies are really uh, taking, taking territory, taking towns, and destroying farms, and so he takes up the sword. In fact, there's a, if you go to Zurich, Switzerland today, there's a statue of Zwingli, and in one hand is the sword, and the other hand is the Bible. And Zwingli believed that that's how to, that's how to bring the kingdom of God, that's how to uh, stop the enemy, and, and so he went off to war, and, and a lot of Anabaptists were killed during that period of time. Zwingli was uh, mortally wounded, they found him. They're looting the battlefield, and they come and they find him. And, and uh, he's been hit on the head several times, so he's barely conscious. They ask him if he would like to, if they found a priest, if he'd like to make a final confession. He, he can't talk, but he says no. They can't believe that anyone would say that. So they put a sword to his chest and said, do you want to call upon Mary to save you? And he shook his head no, and they killed him. They ran him through. Then when they found out that it was Wingley... They didn't want him to go to heaven, so they quartered his body, and they took the entrails of a pig, and they, they mixed it with his body so that he could never be received by God, never be touched by God. It was a major statement that, uh, against his movement that he would never be acceptable to God, embraced by God. There's a 30-year war. Imagine a 30-year war. It's hard to believe something that would go on that long in Europe, displace a lot of people. There's a young man who was British who was sent to America. It was the colonies, and he came here, and he, his dad was a friend of the King of England, and he gave him a massive piece of land, real estate, and it came into his heart that he would populate it with people who are being persecuted and displaced in Europe and other parts of the world. He, he himself was a Quaker and uh, non-resistant, was big to him. And, 
and uh, believing and being born again. And, and uh, so he went to Europe and other people were sent there on his behalf and, and said, if you want freedom, freedom to, for worship, freedom to start over, freedom to live for the Lord, come to my woods, come and live in my woods and, and uh, we'll, we'll guarantee that you can live in peace. And he went, he found Lutherans who wanted to do that, uh, Moravians, uh, Anabaptists, uh, uh, German Baptists, uh, other Quakers, other movements, different people, uh, Dunkers, people who believed in the only immersion. He said, come, you can live in my woods. And he brought them by the thousands. Jacob Amon's group, they made their way. They got on ships and they come to Penn's woods because they wanted to live in freedom. That's Pennsylvania. They opened up for freedom. Russia, they also opened up. They, had, they needed laborers to, to manage the steps, and they knew that the Anabaptists were hard workers, and so they invited Mennonites to come to live in uh, designated areas to farm the great wheat fields of, of Russia, the promise that they would never have to go to war. And when that promise was broken, many of those people wanted to leave Russia. They went to South America. There's lots and lots of Mennonites in South America, and they, many of them went to Canada. And there's another group in this whole mix called Hutterites, and, and uh, uh, what they loved is they, they, the only way they could really survive all the things that were put on the Anabaptists was that they needed to live in community. They need to have all things in common. It was the best way to survive. And so you can go to Canada today, and there are people who are Anabaptist roots. They come out of this tumultuous time that are Hutterites, speaking German, but they live in colonies, in community, having all things in common. Well, let me ask you this. Are you a radical? Are you a radical who's trying to get back to the book of Acts? How radical are you? Are you a radical in that you don't like top-down state involvement in your spiritual affairs, your religious life? They, don't, they shouldn't have any say in what you believe and what you do, or whether you gather together for worship. How radical are you? We all identify with somebody. And there's always going to be somebody who's going to come along who's going to be more radical than you. They're going to push all your buttons. They're going to make you look bad. They're going to take a good thing and drive it into the ditch, drive it into the extreme. They're going to go into a thing called lawlessness where that means don't tell me what to do. I'll just do my own thing. No one has any say over my life. I come out of something like that. And there's often a resentment that happens when you find out that what you've been taught, what you've been raised in isn't true. There's a resentment that can fuel going to another extreme where you throw off all boundaries and what other people believe. And I'm not going to be under anyone's authority, and I'm not going to identify with any of that. No one's going to tell me what to do. How, how radical are you? Are you radical? My name is Mud in lots of places because we rebaptize 
people who were raised Anabaptists, who were all baptized as a group, you know, age 15 or 16, but they weren't born again. And, and they've come and they said, my heart still beats to be rebaptized or to be baptized. Would you rebaptize me? So uh, uh, there are people who are so opposed to that because baptism has changed. It's become some kind of ownership. And, and uh, they're, they're the only true way to God. And, and then when you rebaptize them, it, it throws them off. And so I, I'm, my name is Mud in this area and other places because we're Anna, Anabaptist. We rebaptize Anabaptist people because they should be. If their heart's longing for that, who are we to say no that they can't be rebaptized? They need to be baptized as believers, and that'll get you in trouble just believing that. It's just too radical. Plus, I believe in the powerful Holy Spirit. That makes me more radical. Again, that the people are just saying that's just too extreme. They believe in an, uh, another experience other than being born again, that there's something more. I do believe that. There's things that I believe. I just believe that they're biblical. I just believe that they're safely tucked within the confounds of the book of Acts. I think there's a safety in saying I don't need to ex excel the book of Acts. I don't need to take something and make it more extreme than the book of Acts. It's extreme enough. I, I, I just need to major on what they majored on in the book of Acts. And there's things that people have as experience that aren't in the book of Acts. Well, make that your minor. Make the book of Acts your major. The book of Acts major is souls. We want people saved. We don't want to do anything that keeps people out of heaven. We want them saved. We want them baptized with three baptisms. We want to be baptized in water. We want to be baptized in the spirit. And we don't have to promise this or prophesy. It will happen. There's a baptism of fire that happens where you lose your loved ones and your favor. And, and sometimes sometimes people rise up against you and there's, there's a persecution that happens. That is, that's part of, in fact, if you go deep in those two first baptisms, you will get the third baptism. It will happen to you. I think that's radical. I taught it recently in an Anabaptist church filled with ex-Amish people, and I found the courage to stand up in front of them to call them into three baptisms. Call them to be true Anabaptists, but tell them that there is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if you surrender to that, there will be a baptism of fire. When I gave the altar call, half the church stood up and came forward, including young boys and girls, wanting, wanting to be radical, wanting the baptism of the Spirit, wanting to surrender to rebaptism. Powerful thing to see. They just need someone who can tell them because they've had an experience. Tell them because it's safely defined, outlined in the book of Acts. It's our, it's our safest place to be. Do you agree? How radical are you? How radical are you? Times are coming where you won't just be able to safely hide away and say, I hope no one sees what I really believe and what I'm really about. I think, I think it'll be brought out. You're going to have to take stands, whether it's from, our, from, the, uh, from the state or from the church. Uh, your stance on homosexuality uh, can be nicely tucked away in your heart, but someday that'll be forced upon you to tell people where you really, what you really believe about that. There's lots of things that are going to be imposed on you that are sociably unacceptable. And that's when being a radical really stands out. You find your voice and you say, I believe this is what the word of God says. So, 
Amen? I don't think there's an end to the sermon. I don't even, it's not really even a sermon, is 